Welcome to the Madrigos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters, where we discuss mental health matters because we know that mental health matters. The topic of tonight's program is keeping our kids safe through middle school, home, school, shul, and camp. It can be a sensitive topic as you will become aware of some of the hidden dangers that our kids can face in those settings. Our presenter for this evening is Rachel Zimmerman, LCPC. She's a licensed clinical professional counselor and holds a master's degree from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. She's a well-known and trusted authority on issues of children's personal safety, such as boundaries, abuse prevention, and healthy relationships. She's someone who parents, teachers, administrators, rabbis, and rabbitsons all have turned to for guidance. From 2007 to 2017, Rachel was the coordinator of Project SHIELD, a program of Jewish Child and Family Services. In that role, she created and implemented a curriculum for child abuse prevention using a healthy relationships model. She facilitated trainings for students as well as educational staff who were involved with students ages four to 18 years about maintaining healthy boundaries with children and detecting child, child abuse. Similar to tonight, Rachel saw to it that parents, too, were trained on abuse prevention methods. In October 2015, Nefesh Chicago was proud to have Rachel give a dynamic panel presentation on child safety, together with administrative representatives from the Department of Child and Family Services, or DCFS. Rachel is currently the student advisor at Hannah Sachs Bay Yaakov, and also has her own private practice, where she works with a variety of client issues, including depression, anxiety, trauma, and body image. We ask that as, as questions arise during the presentation, you kindly type them into the chat as concisely as possible, and we will try to get to as many questions as we can. No further ado, it is my honor to present to you Rachel Zimmerman. Thank you. I'm sure um, you're all as happy as I am that nobody's traveling out on a night like tonight in Chicago. Um, but I, I have to tell you how wonderful it's been working with Madragos and Nefesh and the ATT on this program. Um, all three of those organizations are, um, are organizations that are near and dear to my heart and um, that the community really couldn't do without. Um, and they really are incredible in their stretch and in their reach and in their motivation to want to help each and in their own ways. And um, so I, I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Um, okay. so. Tonight, I was asked to speak about um, preventing child abuse in the younger children through middle school age group. You know, while I was at JCFS, I had a lot of conversations with people about the use of the word safe versus the use of the word safer. Um, because a lot of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is really trying to um, get to this place where we understand what we can do what's within our control, what are the steps we can place, and what's the preventative things we can do, and what is, God forbid, the reactive things we can do to help keep our kids safer. 
Um, but one of the things that as we're talking that we're going to know is that it's almost as important to do the preventative stuff as to admit that there's lots of things that are going to come our children's way in life. We're not going to be able to protect them and from everything. And if anything, we know that the more we try to completely fool, you know, safe proof them from everything, you know, wrap them up in saran wrap within the world, we're actually robbing them of the ability to have skills and keep themselves safe. Um, so a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight is also building our kids skills, tools, communication ability um, to be able to reach out for help when they need it. Um, but we need to band together as a community, um, parents, schools, camps, um, Reveillon, uh, community leaders to first and foremost know that abuse does exist within our community and then do what we can to create um, environments around children to keep them safer or as safe as possible. Um, this is a hard topic. As I'm talking about things tonight or possibly giving examples of things, I know statistically, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, that I probably am talking to people in this audience that have gone through hard things, who possibly have gone through abuse of their own. Um, and so while I'm talking, if there are things that like are hard to hear or you start to feel a little bit of a reaction, maybe take a break. Maybe, you know, go splash some water on your face. Maybe, you know, take a really mindful sip of water. Um, but first and foremost, take care of yourselves because this is a hard topic, regardless of what you have or have not gone through in your lives. Um, the second thing I'm going to say is that oftentimes we'll use humor or try to make things a little bit light. But that's only because I want to make sure that people are still breathing while I'm talking, especially about serious topics. It's not to make light of the, of the subject matter. It's not to make light of anyone's experience. But I have found that when people are incredibly serious the entire time and talking about very important, serious, potentially scary topics, that at a certain point people just start clicking off because the human brain only has a certain capacity to be able to hold before we like hit complete panic mode. Um, so forgive me in advance if if humor is not your style, um, but I do it to make sure that we're all still with me. Um, I, I find that as I've done this over the years, um, that I get two, the two to four main reactions um, when I talk about these things. The first is often panic, um, a reaction of like, oh no, my kids aren't safe. There really is abuse in this world. I have to keep my kid from, you know, from doing anything. I can't let my kids have any relationships with any strangers that I'm not 100% sure of. Um, and we'll talk about the idea of just being 100% sure of quite anybody. But yet at the same time, you know, I had a, I had one time did one of these parent presentations in a school and a parent came over to me um, a week later in Jewel and she said, you know what, Rachel, I heard you and I heard what you had to say. And I went home and I told my daughter, no more sleepovers and we're pushing off, you know, overnight camp for a few more years. So I just, I really took you seriously on what you had to say. And I, I was so taken aback. I, I, of course, you know, had to like put on the like, oh, okay, great face. But yet I, I also, my, my reaction to that was, let's not do that. Let's give our kids the tools to be able to navigate these situations. We don't want panic. We don't want to like live a, in a world where we're saran wrapping our children. So I don't want panic here. I, I, we'll get to what I do want. The second reaction I often get is anger. Um, I'll get people saying like, this is crazy. Why isn't the community doing more? Why don't we just take anyone who ever means harm against a child and I don't know, wrestle them up and throw them I don't know where. And like, there's this idea of just anger, anger at people that let it happen, anger at anyone and anyone, which anger is a very normal response when we feel out of control, especially of the safety of loved ones. Um, and yet anger doesn't help us here either. And especially when it comes to children, as we're going to talk about, anger actually shuts them down from ever wanting to tell us things. So we don't want to come at any of this with anger. Um, 
The, the next one, which I have to say, you know, from when I started, I think, what did Dr. Miller say in 2007? Feels like a long time ago. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, that the, uh, you know, that, that this has not, this is not something I come up to as much. But denial, um, either denial that this exists, denial that it's such a big deal, denial that it's anything that could happen to any, you know, to any of our children. Um, and yet at the same time, I used to say it, and I know that it's still true, that when I was working across the community, there was not a single school system, both elementary, both high school, yeshivas, all across the board of the entire Orthodox community that I hadn't helped with a case of child sexual abuse with. It happens in every segment of our community. It happens in every age group, every socioeconomic class, every neighborhood. Um, there's nobody who can say, I don't have to worry about this. Now, again, back to not wanting to panic. That doesn't mean that this is a day-to-day -day, like, oh, no. But at the same time, I, we need to take this seriously enough. And I'm sure if you're here, you are the types that are taking this seriously enough um, to be able to take the proactive steps to keep our kids safer. What I, so what am I hoping for? I'm hoping for motivation, which again, the fact that you're here either means that you were so um, WhatsApp status bombed by all the people who said you have to come, you have to come, um, but most likely you're motivated. You're motivated to know what you have to do to keep your kids safe. You're motivated to be here, to hear what we have to do. Um, and I'm hoping that you'll walk away. You know, the greatest compliment you can give me is that you walked away with some, two or three concrete things that A, you'll actually remember in more than 24 hours from now, and that B, that you're hoping to implement. Um, so that is my goal, to be as concrete as possible. Now let's start about some truths about abuse. Um, you know, the national statistics are, are you know, they're, they're, they vary, um, but I'm gonna give you conservative statistics. They say that one in four girls and that one in seven boys will be sexually abused before the age of 18. Now, sometimes people will come at me and say, you know, for sure that's not as high in the Jewish community. We don't know that. We don't have proof of that. Any study they've tried to do, as you can imagine, has been thwarted because in, in general, in insular communities, we don't like to give numbers and we don't like to participate in studies that, in, you know, that could come back against us, which I understand. And yet it gives us the um, inability to have studies that could show where we really are. I will tell you that I don't believe that the stats are so much uh, lower, um, but even let's say, let's pretend it's one in 10. Let's pretend it's even one in 15. Think about how many kids are in your kid's class, in your kid's grade, in your kid's school. Think about what that means statistically. It's enough to say, okay, we have to do something. The other thing which we know about these statistics is that boys are notoriously awful reporters of abuse because it's hard enough as it is to have to come forward and say that somebody took advantage of me Culturally, we do a number on boys to make it seem that it's inappropriate for them to have let something happen to them. And so we know that boys have a hard time coming forward. And that if, if men ever do report, it's oftentimes in the much later, later years of their life. Um, the next thing that we, next truth about abuse that we know is that while stranger danger is important and, you know, making sure the kids know that we don't take candy from strangers and we don't take rides home from people we don't know, very important. And yet over 90% of abuse is perpetrated by somebody the kid knows and, and knows well and usually is in a trust relationship with. This can include neighbors, this can include teachers, this can include coaches, this can include um, cousins, this can include grandparents, this can include aunts and uncles, this can include parents, this can include siblings. 
And so, yes, we need to teach stranger danger, but the ability of being able to navigate relationships where we feel someone has hurt us or has taken advantage of us and we know and love them is an even more important skill. Uh, a difficult one, a complicated one, but when it comes to abuse prevention, an, an imperative one. Um, the next truth is that there is no true stereotype for who abuses children. I think if you ask most people to conjure up in their mind what they think of a pedophile or a child abuser, they have some idea of a man in a trench coat who's, you know, some, some type of socially awkward, some type, and, and those stereotypes, first of all, do poorly to, pe you know, to people who may fit the stereotype and yet have never been attracted to somebody um, of a younger age. Um, we also know that sexual abuse of a child is often not, not just about attraction, but oftentimes about power and control. Um, but a lot of the people that we know have abused children, you know, are, are warm and charismatic and engaging and outgoing and the type of people that are good at gaining children's trust. Um, and so if we have a certain stereotype in our mind, then we're going to rule out the possibility of something that's right in front of us. Um, when I was involved, unfortunately, in that really awful um, seminary crisis scandal of about like seven or eight years ago, where it was found that a rabbi of a seminary was having inappropriate um, relationships with his students, one of the things that people were very upset about was how could the staff have not known, noticed, suspected, and I'm not saying that's not a valid question, but I know that when they questioned a lot of the staff, part of their answer was it wasn't even a possibility in our head that someone like him and someone of his stature could ever do something like this. And so, yes, there may have been something that now knowing it, I was like, I could say is obvious, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't know. And Dr. Pelkovitz, if any of you have heard him speak on the topic, and he's amazing and incredible, and he spoke for sure, you know, when the last time there was a big partnership for abuse prevention, I believe he spoke at one of the schools, and he said something which really stuck with me. He said, the eye cannot see what the mind does not know. And so if the mind doesn't have the possibility of the fact that this, these things can happen and that there is no real stereotype and that we can't overlook anybody when it comes um, to signs and symptoms that something not good is happening, if we don't have it as a possibility in our minds, then the eye cannot see it. Um, so tonight is very much about opening our eyes, opening our minds to the possibilities, again, calmly and in a motivated way, and yet knowing, you know, that we're not going to close our eyes or our minds to what we need to know for this. Um, another truth about abuse um, is that a, usually a kid um, wants to tell what has happened to them if they've been hurt. But it's very, very difficult. Sometimes, you know, when abuse comes out, they'll say, well, why would the kid have let that happen for so long? Why wouldn't they have just told? Um, and we have to know that when somebody hurts a child, it's oftentimes with lots with threats, possibly, or with promises, promises of good things, promises of of presence, promises of quality time, promises of, um, of a relationship, you know, and especially if you have a kid that's lacking in relationships in their life and close relationships in their life, they'll, they'll sort of ignore or overlook lots of things in order to keep that relationship going. Um, so we have to know that it takes an incredible amount of bravery. Um, and oftentimes kids do not want the person who's hurting them, if they, if they know them, love them, trust them, to get in any kind of trouble. So again, they're, they're willing to let things continue in order to protect the people they know and love.
Um, so we have to really know the truth of how difficult this is to have a kid be able to come forward. Um, you know, every, another, another truth is that every kid who's been abused will be, will, that has been in an abusive situation will be different in how it has affected them. Um, you know, I've been through situations where, you know, um, a parent will say to me, well, if this happened to my child, is there for sure damage? Is there for sure trauma? Is there, and the answer is no. The answer is there are no for sures. You know, there's lots of factors involved and, you know, how long did it happen for? And, and God forbid, how extensive was it? And, and even more importantly, what did the child believe about themselves? The beliefs that they that come out from that, I think are some of the strongest pieces that need to be healed. Um, but there is no definite in terms of timing, in terms of, you know, truck trauma in terms of any of these things. And we really need to be open to what each person who's gone through a hard situation needs in that moment. Um, okay. So Rachel, you've made us nervous. We're, we're, you know, we're there. <laughs> Hopefully motivationally nervous. I don't think motivationally is a word, but we're also going to roll with it. Um, so what do we do? So I'm going to spend the next about half an hour, maybe a little bit shorter than that, talking about prevention and reaction. Um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So the prevention pieces that I'm going to be talking about tonight are setting up healthy boundaries in your home with your children, being an askable parent, um, supervision and what places are need supervision, um, and important conversations to be had. And I'm going to list about four of those. So, okay, so let's jump in. Boundaries. Um, you know, I saw in one of the one of the emails that went out that I, I am a I, I am an expert in boundaries, which is it's quite a compliment. But um, you know, what, what do boundaries mean? Um, you know, some of my friends would probably maybe disagree with that statement. But the idea that boundaries really is about interpersonal space between two people, where one person begins and another person ends. And in life and in relationships, we're always going into people's personal space and boundaries. Boundary crossings are not only inevitable; they're wanted. You know. When you, you know, see your child is crying and you go to give them a hug, you've boundary crossed into their physical space, but in the most wonderful way, right? When you have a know that a friend's going through a hard time and you call them up and say, hey, I know it was a hard day. Are you doing okay? You, you've boundary crossed, but yet in a way that made them feel supportive. And yet at the same time, we can take the same two acts. We all have been in, in a situation where we're feeling overwhelmed or something's happening and someone gives us a hug and we really didn't want the hug right? And we've also been in a situation where we're really struggling with something and somebody calls up with very personal nosy questions that don't feel well intended and not from the right person that feel like a boundary crossing not in the right way, right? So when we're teaching our kids about boundaries, part of what makes it difficult is that they're not black and white. Yes, there may be some things that are black and white in terms of no one should ever have the ability to hit you, to touch you in private areas of your body, you know, those type of things. But yet most human interactions and relationship interactions are gray. So in setting up a well-boundaried home, what we're talking about is setting up a home where your kids feel that there are limits that they can say no to things, that they'll be respected, that they're, if they're uncomfortable with something, at the very least it'll be talked out, even if it still happens, that their, 
their peace inside of them, their ability to say, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this, that worked for my older sister, it doesn't work for me, is respected. That's a well-boundaried home. And again, I'm going to go through some things that are a little bit more concrete in setting that up, but it, it's a hard concept, and yet it's, it's imperative. It's so important. It's one of the most important things, because if our kids are brought up in well-boundaried homes, then they know what it feels like when things are unboundaried or unsafe and are quicker to be able to say, I don't like this and keep themselves safe. So um, what are some of the different boundaries that we set up in the home? Um, I like to usually just talk about physical, emotional, and sexual boundaries or private part boundaries, though there are many more than that. Um, physical boundaries. So obviously we need, you know, some type of, you know, when like some type of ability for if a kid is being, you know, is roughhousing with his siblings that he can say stop at some point. Um, that if a kid doesn't like to be hugged, that, 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 that that's not the norm when they're upset that you figure out a different way. The ability, the right over their own body, which is a conversation we'll come back to. Also their physical space, um, that we knock on doors before we come in. That if it's somebody's stuff that that's respected and if somebody invaded another child's stuff, then that is to be taken seriously. And one of the most important reasons why is that a child should feel that, that sense of respect for their physical boundaries. Um, the emotional piece, which is also very big. You know, I know in my house, you know, we're big, we're big jokesters. We're sarcasm, teasing, all of those things. And yet, this, not all of my kids love it, right? So how do we navigate space for my kids who love the banter back and forth and the kids who don't? And I'm not going to pretend that that's easy, but we have to jump in and try to wade through it um, so that we can figure out a way that a child feels like, if I don't like to be teased, then I don't have to be. Um, and again, those pieces are incredibly big. Or personal questions, you know, part of, I think, abuse prevention is the ability to ask questions, which we'll talk about. But at the same time, if your child is signaling, I'm not ready for questions right now, there's something very important to respecting that and say, you know what, I'm going to check in with you later, but I can see right now that it's not the time and it's making you feel not good. Um, so respecting those emotional pieces and emotional flags that they show you as well. Um, when it comes to the, you know, the private parts or those boundaries, we, we keep them even more carefully. Um, doors are closed as long as an, a kid is old enough, you know, when kids go to the bathroom. Um, nobody walks in when another person is in the shower. I don't care that you're just going to get your toothbrush and they were behind a shower curtain, right? That there's just this idea that people, when it comes to changing, dressing, um, any of those things, feel an extra sense of like respect. And I, I think this is especially true once kids get to middle school, though the seeds of respect that and understanding that your private that your body belongs to you and your private parts are not to be looked at touched or talked about other talked about by other people which i'll repeat again in a few minutes um i think is incredible the tone of that in the house from the earliest of ages is incredibly important and can be modeled one of the greatest things we could do is model right so even now you know i have a two and a half year old what does he understand? He doesn't really understand. But I'll say, mommy needs to get dressed. And he'll say, okay, and he'll run right over. And I'm like, no, no, mommy's going to get dressed and mommy's going to close the door because when mommy gets dressed, mommy closes the door, right? Well, okay, right, fine. You know, so, but at the same time, like he's already starting to get that understanding of, you know, that like when we get dressed or when there's private parts or when there's whatever, it's okay to ask for something and it's okay to be given it. Um, he may not enjoy that right now, but I think that like the idea that we're instilling that even from the youngest of ages is important. Um, 
the, and I, I think we've talked about why boundaries are important. We know that abuse in, is, is an essence. If, if boundaries are on a spectrum and my hand is like hugging when you don't want to be hugged, right? And near my, you know, this part of my arm is, you know, being, being tickled until you can't breathe and you've asked to stop, you know, being touched in the private areas of your body or being hit or smacked in a way that's, that's violent would be in the abuse sense. And again, the more we can help kids understand the boundary violations and feel it and be able to speak up for themselves in this part of the spectrum, we hopefully help them prevent themselves from getting to this part of the spectrum or knowing when they're leading that way so they possibly could get more help. Now, again, nothing is foolproof and I can say that a million times tonight, um, but these are the steps and the tools we use to try to give our kids what they need. Um, okay. Another piece I think is important in the from world is that part of being able to speak up for your boundaries is being able to teach your kids the difference between being rude and being respectfully assertive, right? So, you know, kids will often say, and they're taught in school as they should be, and, you know, and that you need to very much respect your elders. And I am somebody who very much like agrees with that. Like I have, I am still someone who has a really hard time calling people by their first name and not Mr. and Mrs. or Dr. or Rabbi, whatever it is, because that's just how I was raised with that certain amount of respect. And I think that that's a good thing. And yet at the same time, the ability to know, like, you know, to say, you know, that to be able to have a kid say, you know what, that's really hard for me. I'd prefer not to do that. Or, you know, Rebby, can I talk to you after class? Because th this thing, this, what you're asking me to do is difficult. Um, or something, or to go over and say to your parent after school, this is what happened in school and I was uncomfortable and I wasn't sure what to do. Let, you know, and you as a parent to say, oh, okay, great that you came to me. Let's role play what you should say tomorrow when you go back in. Right. So the ability to not just roll with it and don't make waves and don't make don't be rude and and just be mevater. You know, there is a very big role for that, for being mevater. And and yet when it comes to your kid having a voice for when things make you uncomfortable and navigating what situations you are mevater and which situations it's actually really important that you speak up is one of the things we want to be able to give kids and look for examples of that when they're telling you about their day. You know, the fact that they gave the ball to their friend, even though they didn't, that's amazing. We applaud that. The fact that every time they speak up or ask questions, it seems to make their teacher more and more annoyed. And so they just don't ask questions anymore. We, we do something with that, right? So that, that difference, I think, is, is really important in helping our kids with boundaries. Um, you know, one thing that I will mention in the boundaries piece before I go on to the next piece in prevention is the idea that sibling abuse and sibling sexual abuse um, is unfortunately one of the most seen forms of abuse, at least I see clinically, and I know a lot of my colleagues see clinically um, in the firm community. And that, you know, we, I could give a whole session on why it's happening and how it's happening, um, but the most important thing for you to know right now is that unfortunately it does happen. Um, and so what can we do about this? Um, that there are, there are situations where older siblings, and I will say it's not just older brothers and older male cousins or, or you know, older males to younger females or younger males. It is also older females. It is also older sisters. I don't think it's reported as much because as we talked about before, boys don't like to say when things like this have happened. Um, but we need to think through our sleeping situations 
um, you know, putting your teenage boys and your teenage girls in the basement completely unsupervised um, may not be and probably should not be the right situation for you. Um, the idea that like any area of the house when it's completely unsupervised is not a good idea. We'll talk a little bit later about how talking to your kids about puberty and their bodies growing and different urges and things is really important after a certain age. Um, and yet when kids don't have that information, that's, you know, in the void of information, it gets filled in. And so the idea of using education, good relationships, supervision, and thinking through your um, sleeping quarters in terms of your boundaries um, with, your, with your children is incredibly important. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, that I've done in different ways is I've put monitors, like, you know, in different places in my house. Again, not because I suspect anything with my children, but I want my children to have the idea that, like, you know, it matters to me that I want to see and hear if something's going on at night, whether it's that you're sick or whether that someone's crying or whether someone's being hurt. I want to know. And so thinking through, and that monitors may not work in every home, but yet thinking through these things so that your kids get the feeling of, uh, my parents are people who are on top of it and supervise and want to know what's happening is incredibly important. Um, okay, so we talked about um, boundaries, which again, could be a topic in and of itself. The next thing I want to spend a minute or two on is being an askable parent. Um, and what this means is, is that you want to think through two different pieces, being the one that shares information with your child um, and also being the one that when your child tests out the waters of coming to you with a potentially upsetting thing, that you can control your emotions, manage yourself to be able to respond accordingly. This is especially important thinking about our reactions from before for our panickers, our overreactors, and our angriers. Um, you know, a child comes to you and says, you know, mommy, um, when I slept over at my friend's house last Motu Shabbos, um, once their parents went to sleep, my friend showed me that um, she has an MP3 player and she showed me some inappropriate videos that I don't think you would have liked. Um, the very first, now, again, you have to know you, but the very first reaction really needs to be, I'm so proud of you for coming to tell me that. That must have been really difficult. Now, if you're really upset, you can say, I'm really proud of you. I need a minute. Just give me a minute to be able to manage some of the things happening so that I can talk to you about it in the way I want to talk to you about it. That in and of itself is an incredible modeling opportunity. Um, so you come back to your child, you say, you know, I want to talk to you more about this, you know, can, would you be willing to tell me what you saw? Um, and then from there, you know, okay, you know, don't make promises, you know, that you can't keep in terms of I won't tell anyone if you are planning on telling someone. Um, you know, don't rush ahead and say, oh, see, I told you that friendship was bad for you. You know, you're not allowed to go there anymore. The end result may be that you don't let them sleep over anymore, but in that moment, it's pride, it's are you okay, it's you know, tell me more about it, and it's let me think more about this and we'll kind of talk about next steps and what we should do from here. Um, that makes you an askable and approachable parent. Um, now on the flip side, you know, someone came to me recently and said their six-year-old son asked them, what's a nipple? 
right? And so the mom said she was like so embarrassed and why does he need to know? And is he gonna go talk about nipples to everybody at school? And that's gonna be so embarrassing and you know, and all those things, you know? And I said to her, I said, okay, you and I can come up with, a, with what you wanna say to him, what you, you know, about what it is, why it is, whether you wanna mention that girls and boys both have them, you know, what we can, you and I can discuss that. The most important thing is that you not say, you don't need to know, don't worry about it, it's private, right? Because what he has learned from you is, is that when I have a question, mommy gets flustered and she pushes me off. And that starts even at the earliest of ages, right? So you can say, you know what, that's such a good question. I actually need to go find out the real right answer to be able to tell you and come back to you tomorrow. But wow, I'm so proud of you for asking a question, for being curious, right? The other thing I want to make sure is that we never want a kid to feel shameful about any part of their bodies. Bodies are wonderful. They may be private. We may keep things covered, but there's nothing wrong with them. Akash Baruch who made them. They're amazing. Every single part of them. And so, you know, being that askable parent is also being somebody that can say, you know, um, you know, that, that, that can hear the question and want to answer it. Um, now, remember that you also don't want to uh, assume that they want to know more than they want to know, right? There's always that famous joke that we give, like, with some of the sex ed questions where they say, you know, the 10-year-old the, the comes and says, Mom, you, you know, where did I come from? And the mother starts hemming and hawing and, well, a husband and a wife, and when they love each other, I don't know, um, I, you know, and he's like, I'm, are we from New York or New Jersey, right? So that, haha, that's the famous joke. See, I told you there'd be amazing jokes in this thing. Um, and yet at the same time, like at the point of what is your kid really asking you is a very important part of being an askable parent too. Do not jump in and overwhelm your child with more information than they ever wanted. Um, again, this will make you um, uh, somebody that your kids are like, whoa, I'm not gonna go there because three hour later, I'm still gonna be sitting there and listening to my mom's answers. So being an askable parent is incredibly important. Um, and I would also take situations going on around you and think to yourself, is this an opportunity for me to step in and talk to my, my, you know, my kids when everything was happening in Washington, DC with the riots and I'm, I, this is not political and my kids were hearing about it, little snippets. So I wanted to be the person who jumps in with information. Now, I don't want them to know everything they know from, from the boys at school. So thinking of opportunities to be able to have calm conversations over dinner in the car, you know, like though I think though that also makes you an askable parent. Um, okay, we talked about boundaries, we talked about askable parent. The next piece is supervision. Supervision. Um, even though children, especially as they get older, will balk at like, I can walk by myself, I'm big enough, I can go to the bathroom by myself when I'm at like a baseball game. I can, you know, at the same time, they also inside love to be, to be taken care of and to know that they're safe and that there's someone asking them to be safe. You know, sometimes with teenagers, they push back on everything. And yet at the same time, the teenagers I know that have the hardest time with their parents' supervision are actually the ones whose parents have no supervision over them because they feel unloved and uncared for um, or that, that they're not worth the effort. So supervision is incredibly important. Um, we need to think through where are children going, who will be supervising, should they be going to that, and what do I need to give them to be able to have this 
the skills they need to, to navigate it, right? So you've decided to go to an amusement park and have decided to let some of your old, older siblings go together, you know, on a ride where you're gonna stay in a certain part of the park. Great, what do they need to know? Do they need a meeting place? Do, they, do you need to make sure that the, even the youngest one has memorized your cell phone number? Um, do they need to know how to identify who works in the amusement park? Um, thinking through those type of situations. But let's talk about situations where we may, supervision may be an issue. Um, you know, one of the places that unfortunately I have heard more and more abusive type situations coming up is at Shoal. Um, and parents think that they can send their children to Shoal and that someone will watch them or that they'll mostly be in Davening. Um, or that there's a playroom off the side and I'm sure my husband will leave every 20 minutes to check in on them. Well, 20 minutes is a really long time. Um, and it is an open building to anyone who knows the code. And so, and again, we're not worrying about strangers off, off the street. We're worrying about who could hurt these children. And so we need to make sure that we're not just sending our kids because it's because it's, it would be such a nice opportunity to go back to sleep. I know it would be. And maybe a better idea is to find a chesed girl who's willing to come to your house on the Shabbos morning. Um, but we don't want to send our children into places where we don't know what's happening, who's around, and there's big gaps of time without supervision. Um, I also think about locker rooms and public bathrooms. You know, we used to joke around when I was younger about the JCC locker rooms. And if you ask certain people, they'll be like, oh yeah, the JCC locker rooms learned more than I ever wanted to know. Um, and a lot of that is about supervision. Um, now, when I was growing up, it was a little different, which it probably was. But at the same time, you know, are you sending your kids into the locker room to change by themselves? Do you know who's in there? Do you know who else is changing in there? Even if no one means harm to your child, they may see more private parts and nudity than they've ever seen in their life. And you don't know that they've been exposed to that, right? And that can be very confusing and somewhat like traumatizing to a little child. So thinking about supervision in public bathrooms, you know, one time, don't tell my kids I told you this story. This is being recorded, right? We went to a baseball game and one of my boys needed to go to the bathroom. And of course he refused to go in the women's bathroom because I'm not going, I forgot how old he was, let's say 10. But he was going into the male bathroom in a baseball park where there was alcohol being served. So you better believe I made a fool out of myself. And for the next like two minutes was like, I won't embarrass which child, so I'll make up a name. And I went into the bathroom and I was like, Moshe, are you okay? I'm right here. Your mother's right here by the front of the bathroom. Now, did this child not talk to me for the rest of the baseball game? Yes. But did every single adult in that bathroom know that there was an adult waiting right there for that child? Yes. So I'm not telling you to be crazy like me. And yet at the same time, think through how are you going to make sure that your child is okay in various situations, especially when locker rooms, bathrooms, where nudity could be involved. Um, Shabbos meals and family parties. You know, I find that sometimes couples will get together. Remember when couples and families got together? Um, but in general, I find that when families get together, when big families get together, when couples get together, they'll send their kids off into the basement to play. Who's checking on them? Who's making sure, you know, I can't even tell you how many um, uh, playing doctor and private part situations started with, and then all the kids went downstairs to play. Um, now, I'm not gonna tell you that it's not normal for two kids to wanna show each other private parts when they're five years old. 
But I will tell you that we should be supervising that so that it shouldn't have been for more than 30 seconds before an adult saw it and stopped it and redirected it and said, no guys, we don't show each other private parts, let's move on, right? So, or I can unfortunately tell you how many cousin abuse situations or sibling abuse situations that started with everybody was downstairs in the dining room. So we went upstairs to one of the bedrooms for over an hour, nobody noticed, right? So you need to think through where are my children? Are they being supervised? Um, and is someone keeping an eye and do they feel supervised? Um, those are some of the big ones that I find um, need, oh, sorry, one of the more important, one of the last important ones is, is the mikvah. Um, and if our young boys are going to the mikvah, which is a choice, and again, a whole decision in and of itself between each family and thereof and their whoever they would like to consult with. But it needs to always, always, always be supervised and with lots of conversations before and after about safety, about what they're seeing, um, and things like that. Sleepover dates, uh, sleepover dates and sleepover, uh, play dates and sleepovers. Um, so again, this isn't something that some families are dealing with as much. And yet at the same time, um, we need to make sure that our kids know that we're going to ask before they go, who's going to be home? Who's babysitting? Um, you know, how many siblings are around? Are the older brothers all home from yeshiva now? Um, where, where are my kids going to be sleeping? Are they sleeping in the room with five other kids? Are they sleeping alone by themselves in the basement unsupervised? You know, that those are all fair questions that may, may bring eye rolls from your kids, and yet they're super important. Um, you know, if it's a family you don't know, then possibly you start with a play date first and not a sleepover. And you tell your kid, you know, when we go into some new situations, it's better to go for an hour or two. And then you come home and you tell me, yeah, it was good and I was comfortable. Then they send you for like nine hours, 10 hours. So let's try this out first. What a great life skill to be able to teach our kid that we put our toe in the water with new relationships before we jump right in to make sure that it feels right. And then we have to think about how to ask questions when they come home or on the way home so that they feel comfortable. Um, okay, so those are some of the, uh, again, we've talked about askable parent boundaries, we've talked about supervision. Um, let's talk about important conversations to have. Um, one of the most important ones which I've alluded to is, and these conversations can start when a child is two or three, which is your body belongs to you. Um, you know, for those of you who are aware of the Safety Kid program that Debbie Fox made, um, and the ABCDs of safety, which I don't have time to completely run through now, but the D is do tell. Um, and part of that is no one is allowed to look at, touch, or talk about the private parts of your body, and you're not allowed to do that to somebody else. Um, and that if someone does, um, it's an automatic do tell. You come tell a trusted adult right away, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a grandparent, whether it's a parent, um, it's an automatic do tell. And that private parts are never a game, and they're never a secret. It doesn't matter from who. It can be from a grandparent. It can be from a, a brother. It can be from a counselor, but it's never a game. It's never a secret, and mommy always wants to know. Um, so even from young age, we talk about what are the private parts of your body, right? And we keep things private. And like sometimes even like, you know, if you're, if you're helping a kid change who's like three or four, you can even say, okay, I'm gonna tell your brothers and sisters to go away now because this is private when I'm helping you put on your underwear, right? So this idea that like, there's private parts and also that their body belongs to them. So you have a kid really struggles with hugging, right? So you're not going to say to them, you, we are not leaving until you give Bubby a hug. Because what lesson have you taught them? 
You've taught them to ignore when they don't want to do something with their body and to do it anyway, right? That it's a rule that they have to do it anyway. Um, so we want to think through situations that give kids the ability to feel like I have some control. Maybe you say to them, you know, it's really important to Bobby that you do something special that makes her feel loved. Do you want to blow a kiss? Do you want to give a half hug? Do you want to, great, but we don't want to force. Your body belongs to you. And there are great kid books out there. One from Rabbi Yaakov Horwitz, which I believe Kesher Stam sells, um, and lots of other great books as well. The next really important conversation is about your uh-oh feeling, which actually goes very much along with what we've been talking about so far. I, I believe that one of the greatest gifts that um, Hashem gave us is our uh-oh feeling. And that uh-oh feeling is that feeling inside of us when we walk into a situation and you're like, ooh, I don't like this, something feels off, uh, something like, and I feel it in my stomach, whether it's butterflies, whether it's a pit in my stomach, and really, uh-oh, you know, people make fun of me when I use it with teenagers, but yet there is no better description for that, like, amazing gift that Hashem gave us. So we want to, like, help our kid be able to, like, be like, oh, are you having an uh-oh feeling right now? What do you think that's about? What do you think, what do you think is making you feel uncomfortable, you know? Oh, is it that the room's dark? Maybe if we made it a little brighter, you'd feel better, right? The ability to trust. Now, it doesn't mean we're not teaching our kid that every time you have the oh feeling, it means you don't have to do it, right? Because that's not a good idea. No one would ever take tests. And yet, what we want to do is be able to say, ooh, okay, so I'm having the oh feeling. What do I do to make myself feel safer? Notice it. Maybe reach out to somebody about it. You know, um, sometimes I'll be in situations and I'll say, you know what? I don't like something about this situation. I'm just going to call my friend and let her know where I am just in case, I'm sure everything's going to be fine. But I validated that uh-oh feeling, right? And for our children, I don't really like that guy who came to Shabbos last week. What? He's such a nice guy. Of course, like, that's not nice. We really need to have him. That's not the response we want to go for. We want to go to, ooh, really? What do you think it was that bothered you? Was it his tone of voice? Was it something about the way he was sitting? You know, it's important to us that we have him again, unless you're feeling very uncomfortable. Um, is there any way I can make you feel safer if we were to have him again, right? Um, now, obviously, that's not if we're talking about somebody who really try, attempted to, a Shabbos guest that attempted to do something inappropriate. Um, that would be a different matter in terms of whether you had them over again. Um, but just this, that we're talking about the concept of um, uh, uh, underlying that uh-oh feeling and, and validating it and, and navigating what we do with it. Um, the next conversation, which is really important, is sleepover camps and dormitories. You know, I once had a friend who said to me, my daughter's going to camp for the first time, take her to Dunkin' Donuts, have the talk. I'm done, Rachel. She's yours. Um, and, and I did. It was cute. I actually took two or three girls together. Uh, I don't usually do that. Um, the conversation is really when you go away to camp and when you're in dormitories, you know, it's very important that you know that there's a lot of different things that could happen, things that make you might make you feel uncomfortable, things that may be difficult for you to understand. You know, it could be that a kid snuck inappropriate like books or magazines and you don't know how to say no. Um, it could be that you have a friend who's, who wants to know if, she'll, if she can sleep in the same bed as you at night and like snuggle with you and you're just like, no, right? It could even be that you have that you have a camp counselor who who yanks your arm when you don't go to activities fast enough. Um, all of these things are possible, and I'm only saying them to you because they've happened. Or there's some there are people in this world who have touching problems, and who touch people inappropriate in their private areas of the body. Does it happen all the time? No, it doesn't. But could it happen? And that's why I need to tell you about it. Yeah, it could. And so we need to talk 
through, what would you do if? What would you do if you had a camp counselor who yanked your arm all the time? Who would you tell? What if they didn't believe you? Who would you tell if you had um, a camp counselor or, or another girl in the bunk or another boy in the bunk that wanted to play a game with private parts or wanted to tell you really inappropriate things and you didn't want to know? What would you do? Um, and the idea of trying to help them brainstorm their own resources and putting it out there for them that these things could happen. Um, and as I mentioned before, the last of the kind of talks you need to have is the idea of having talks about puberty and intimacy um, as, as kids get to about that age. Now, again, that would be a whole presentation in and of itself and what you would say. Um, but once your kid is getting to the point where their body starts growing, um, it's, it's already too late. You know, within a few months um, in that age bracket of fifth, sixth, seventh grade, you need to be start having conversations with them. So again, that they feel that there's nothing wrong with their body. There's no shame. Um, you make yourself an askable parent, that you're the person you, they go to with questions, not the kid on the bus that wants to give them information. Um, but also that Unfortunately, we know that people who abuse children sometimes take advantage of the fact that they have no sexual knowledge, that they have no ability to describe or even name their own body parts. And so sometimes in the void of information, um, harm can be done. And so for all of those reasons, when it's about to be the time, you need to step in, ask whoever you need to ask, a professional, a teacher, a rov, uh, I have great books, whoever and whomever and whatever you would like to be able to have the words to be able to talk to your kids about puberty and intimacy and whatever you feel fit. Um, okay, so those are the talks that we've talked about in terms of prevention. Again, your body belongs to you. Um, the LO feeling, sleepover camps and dormitories, and puberty and intimacy talks. Um, I'm going to spend about another seven minutes going over reacting, um, and then hopefully we can get to some questions. Um, so we've talked about prevention. Again, I'll go over all the prevention pieces again at the end. Now we have to talk about when something does happen. Um, now the first thing I want to say really quickly is um, the thing I used to get phone calls about the most and I see happening the most, I think because we've done so well on awareness on this topic that parents and get very panicked about is normative child sexual play. Um, and so I want to spend a minute just saying, if you have two five-year-olds, right, or a five-year-old and a six-year-old that all of a sudden, you know, you leave the room for a few minutes, you come back and both their parents are dropped and they're like giggling, right? That is very normal. And we just want to say, remember, Private parts stay private. We don't look at other people's private parts, right? So come, we're gonna, we're gonna go make hot chocolate together and we're not gonna do this again, right? If you wanna see your private parts, you can go into the bathroom by yourself. The most important things are to redirect firmly and also to not give any shame or disgust. It's very normal to wanna see body and body parts, especially at the age of five. They don't have the knowledge we have. They don't think of it as crazy or scary or any of those things as we do when we see it. So we need to be very calm. Um, and even if you have two kids who like are attempting to like, ooh, what happens when I touch, right? Those things are also very normal in the three to six, three, you know, three to seven year old range. You know, the times where I start to get concerned are if you have one kid who's always trying to play these games with other kids and cannot, is not easily redirected, 
Um, if you have a kid who's promising treats or threatening kids that they'll hurt them if they don't show or touch private parts, um, or if you have a kid who has sexual knowledge beyond their age, then I would be concerned. Um, but I, I don't, I want there to be a sense of that there is such a thing as normative child sexual curiosity in play. And we do not want to overreact to things because we sow the seeds of shame when we do that. And those are not always easily undone. Um, so it's important that we know that. Um, the signs and symptoms of abuse in the child are the signs and symptoms of so many other things. So I'm just going to briefly say that if your child um, all of a sudden has a sudden change in behavior, they're usually very quiet and all of a sudden they are off the wall, out of control behaviorally. Or the opposite, you have a kid who's rambunctious and wild and fun and like usually is like, ah, but you love them. And all of a sudden they're completely withdrawn and quiet. Right? Those are signs and symptoms of many different things, and one of them is possibly abuse. Anytime you have a red flag that comes your way in your kid's behavior, it's saying, pay attention to me. And so you'll go through the process of talking to their teacher, possibly you know, consulting with a therapist, trying to figure out the school social worker is a great avenue for these things. And I know, you know the ATT has great social works and, and consultation groups for that, um, to really just make sure that our kids are okay. Um, if you have a kid who all of a sudden is a, you know, will say, I don't, I don't want to be tutored by that, by that guy anymore. Why? He's helping you. It's so important. I don't want to. Again, we need to trust our kid's voice, but that is a red flag as to, as to why. Um, you know, obviously, if we all of a sudden have a kid who has physical symptoms out of the blue, sudden stomach aches, sudden headaches, sudden, you know, all of the sudden sleep issues. Again, signs and symptoms of lots of different things. And yet, you know, we know that there are signs and symptoms here as well. And again, as I said in, um, in the normative sexual play section, anytime a kid has knowledge of sexual um, things that beyond their age, that's also clearly a red flag, uh, could be of pornography exposure, could be of other things, also could be of something um, not good happening. Um, when your child or if your child comes to tell you that something has happened to them, all the same things that I talked about and being an askable parent apply. You need to stay as calm as possible to take a breath and a, and a break. One of the most important things we know is that you need to make sure your child knows that you believe them. There are so many studies that show that the first reaction a kid gets to telling that someone has hurt them is one of the key factors in their healing process. So I believe you. I'm so sorry that happened. I'm so proud of you for coming to tell me. Um, don't make promises that you're not going to tell anyone. If that's not true. You can tell them that you're going to think about who and who you're going to have to tell, and you'll let them know, and you'll keep them in the process. Um, you'll tell them that you have to think things things through, and maybe talk to their their mother, their father, you know, in terms of thinking what through. But don't make promises that you can't keep. Um, you're going to need to break down a little bit. Do that later. Um, do that when you can and to get the help you need. Oftentimes when a child has been abused, I will recommend that the parent go for help at the same time because navigating it for themselves, their own emotions, their own reactions um, is incredibly important. Now what happens from there is very different in each situation, which again is outside the scope, whether it's DCFS, whether it's police, whether it's school action, whether it's calling other parents. Um, 
whether it's just working on your own child and getting them help. You know, every situation is so unique um, and making sure that you take them seriously and go to a professional and go to an adult or go to somebody in the school um, until you're taken seriously and be your child's advocate, their number one advocate. Um, but never losing sight of the fact that even though you're advocating for your child and telling who you need to tell, their health and well-being and emotional well-being and getting getting help, getting treatment is 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 your should be your your most important piece in helping your child heal. So, whew, let's recap. Um, so, one some of the things that we talked about today in terms of prevention, we're building healthy boundaries in your home, being an askable parent, supervision having important conversations with your child like your body belongs to you, the uh-oh feeling, sleepovers um, and dormitories and camps um, and puberty and intimacy conversations. Um, and then if something does happen, managing you know, your, your reaction, telling them that you believe them, looking out for signs and symptoms and taking those seriously, um, and, and really being somebody that builds resources around you so that if you do need help, you have the support system around you to be able to get you, your family, and your child what they need. Um, because lastly, the thing that we need to do beyond what you've done in coming here tonight and going to the all other amazing uh, sessions that is offered in this series is that we need to dive in. We need to ask our, our child's most powerful parent for help and siyata dishmaya and keeping our kids safe and being able to get our kids what they need um, and, and, and helping them get through these years with the most amount of tools to, to navigate this world. Um, and together in that partnership, um, hopefully we will be successful. Um, thank you. I'm sorry I went over time in terms of my time for questions, but I am available for questions now. Okay, phenomenal. Um, you gave us so many tools and um, so many things to think about. There's, there's so much takeaway here. Um, let, let's see if we can um, get to at least one question. Um, can, you, can you ask about siblings bathing together, young siblings bathing together? So um, two or three year olds, what do you think about that? It's a great question and I, and I get it all the time. And I, I don't I don't, it's two, three, four, you know, it really is an individual situation. Once you see that your older child is starting to notice private parts or get very curious or want to touch private parts, that for sure is your sign that bathing together is over. Not in a bad way, not in a, oh no, we can't bathe together anymore. Again, we don't want to do shame. You're getting to be so big. You're noticing things. You have such good questions. You know, I think you're ready to graduate to your own bath. Um, that's one piece. You know, um, I, I think that by the time you hit, and again, I don't like ages. I really don't. It has to do with maturity, personalities, um, boundaries. Do both kids seem comfortable? I think once you have a child that's um, at like six or seven is around when you, but again, I, 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 I'm loath to say it. I'm more into think about the situation, think about their maturity, think about what they're noticing and make good decisions based on that. So Rachel, you have your own private practice. I, I, I would like to be able to give the audience your email address if they have a question that might be better answered in, in, a, in a clinical or, or session kind of a setting. Um, what is your email address? It's, um, thank you so much, Dr. Miller. It's um, Rachel Zimmerman, lcpc at gmail.com. 
Um, and, and definitely you can, um, you can reach out to any of the partners who put together, you know, to get my contact information as well, but it's, it's Rachel Zimmerman, LCPC at gmail.com. Um, so, um, so we're, we're right at one hour, Rachel, thank you so much. You, you really gave us so much great information to consider as, as, as we're, um, working on the task of keeping our kids safe. Um, and thank you everyone for um, spending this hour with us. Um, I, I'm sure it was so valuable. I don't even have to say, I hope it was valuable. Um, you've given us so much great information to think about. Um, so um, remember we have two more uh, sessions in the series and we look forward to seeing you then. Um, so stay tuned everyone in, in so many ways. Thank you and, and stay warm. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mental Health Matters. To learn more about Madragos Midwest, visit us at madragosmidwest.org. Please join us next time as we discuss another mental health matter.